And that gospel lesson comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. It is in the 14th chapter and begins at the first verse. There we hear Jesus say, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and, in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Indeed. Please be seated. Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I've come to admire our Pastor Jerry Watts for a number of things, but among them are what I call his ability to see distant horizons. (laughs) And what I mean by that is he can see things and plan for things that are way beyond where I'm concentrated on in the here and now. I, I stay only about two weeks ahead of myself. He can be a year and a half to two years ahead of the rest of us. And, and that's a blessing for us. It's a blessing for our church staff because he can define exactly what everybody's going to be preaching on many months in advance of when you see us appear here. And he even matches the preachers to the dates they will be preaching a year and a half in advance. That's a talent. But when you do something like that, you have to be flexible. And he is. He has to be because, well, stuff happens in life, right? The unexpected will happen. And there have been some unforeseen personal intrusions into your three pastors' lives that have occurred in the months of June and July and August. So, Pastor Jerry, working with Scott and I, have had to reassign a number of the preaching dates. Things have had to be juggled. It was just, really, just two or three weeks ago, I was given the responsibility of proclaiming the second article of the Creed in our series, as you can find in this nice little catechism book, but the second article of the Creed was my responsibility only two or three weeks ago. Eighteen months ago, it wasn't my responsibility. I had a whole different assignment 
altogether. But it's, it's natural that what we hear this morning, this preaching on the Son, this proclamation of the Son, should follow what Pastor Watts gave us last week, which was proclamation on the Father. And so as the Father follows, or precedes, excuse me, the Son in our creed, so it does in our consideration from this place. As natural as it is for you to hear about the person of the Son then, in the flow of things this week, it came as a surprise to me, because again, I was supposed to be preaching on prayer a couple weeks from now, and I hadn't thought about this or planned about this more than about two weeks ago. And I'd been, again, preparing for something entirely different. And then as I opened my reference books, starting with the creed itself, I was just utterly knocked on my heels when I consider how much of our faith, how much of the Christian faith is contained in the second article of the creed, the article about the Son, Jesus Christ. If, if you consider the words, as we will say them in just a few minutes, there are elements of Christmas there, of Holy Week, of Easter, Jesus' ascension. It's all there in just brief little phrases and bits. You'll observe this again as we share the creed in a few moments. But the consequence of having to preach all of that at one time just struck me like a ton of bricks. I, I was talking to one of our musicians uh, who was planning musical presentation. And that person told me, I don't know whether to put, you know, joy to the world or one of our Easter anthems or what to do with all of this. It was a challenge. I, for my own part, I thought about taking the easy way out of doing this. I thought, well, since it has all those elements, I'll get one of my old Christmas sermons and I'll get a Holy Week sermon, a Good Friday one probably, and I'll get an Easter one too and I'll staple them all together and I'll, you'll listen to all of them. Of course, that would be easy for me, but my friend in the back row who jokes about nodding off during my sermons would have had an excuse, right? Anyway, in truth, as I've come to learn in these two weeks even more intimately than I knew before, every single sermon, every single Sunday could come from the Creed second article. It's all there. I opened up Luther's large catechism, the large one, not the little one. I opened it up and I looked for what it said about this second article and I was surprised as, as large as the large catechism is, it only has one page, one page about the second article. And the last paragraph of that says this, again, written by Luther 500 years ago. The proper place to explain the points made in the Creed's second article about the sun is through sermons throughout the whole year, especially at times appointed for dealing at length with Christ's birth, passion, resurrection, ascension, and Luther even writes, etc. It's all there. Indeed, he continues, the entire gospel that we preach depends on the proper understanding of this, the second article. Upon it, all our salvation and blessedness are, bla are based. It is so rich and broad that we can never learn it fully. And I'm supposed to explain it in 20 minutes or less. Ouch. So with that hanging over my head, I thought, well, rather than trying to say anything about everything that matters, 
I thought I'd limit today's message to a consideration of what that one word, son, means and what it should mean to those of us in the church. Now, I would say most of us think we know what the word son means. It's a common English word. We, many of us, use it quite often. After all, roughly half of us, the ones who are male, are sons ourselves. I confess to being one of those. Now, just using my family as an example, Jessica and I have raised one son. He's now grown, married, has a family of his own, and his name is Kyle. Kyle has, in his family, two sons of his own. We've also raised three daughters. Two of them are now married and raising their families. The third has just finished college. But those two, Karen and Brittany, they each have two sons. If you're counting, that's a lot of testosterone. And therefore, my wife reminds me, it's a great blessing that we also have five granddaughters to balance all that mess out. But your family experience, if it's anything like mine, comes to an understanding of what a son is because you encounter them. They're in your home or they're in your, they're your extended family's homes, or you are one. We get our understandings from the contact we have with sons. This concept of a son is obvious. It's obvious because it's part of our human experience. But I have a question for you this morning. Is the experience of father and son in the Godhead, that which we confess in the creed, is that the same as the father-son experience that we have in our normal family lives? Are they the same? Well, in an effort to try to draw some clarity to that, let me take a bit of time to recount the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. It's found in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. And you'll likely recall most of the story details from Sunday school when you were a kid, perhaps. I learned it when my mother was my Sunday school teacher and she had her famous felt board, right? And maybe you learned it in a way similar to that. But here are the essentials, just to refresh your memory. Abraham, we're told, was tested. He was tested by God when the Lord told him to take his only son, his heir, the one upon which everything hinged in the future of Abraham's line, to take Isaac to the land of Moriah and offer his only beloved son as a burnt offering. He was to do that on a mountain that God would show him. Abraham, dutifully, without saying a word, prepared his donkey He took two young men from his household to help him with the journey and they went off in the direction of Moriah. Before, as they were going or before, it's not quite certain, Abraham also collected and cut some wood and took that along for the journey as well. Three days travel later, three days, Abraham recognized the place that he was supposed to go. The young men from the household were told to stay at that point in the road And the father carried a source of fire. Think of it as something like a torch. And he had with his other hand a knife. And he put that wood he had cut on his son Isaac's back. And the two of them walked up onto the mountain. Just the two of them. Isaac asked his father as they went along, Where is the lamb for our sacrifice? And his father Abraham told him simply, God will provide the lamb. When they reached their destination atop that high mountain, Abraham built an altar. 
He laid the wood out on the altar and he bound his son with, we presume, something like ropes. And he laid him out on top of the wood, on top of the altar, as a sacrifice. He then raised a knife above his son's chest to perform the fatal and first act to end his son's life. But then the Bible tells us an angel's voice intervenes, breaking up the action as it's depicted for us. Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And we are told then that the ram was offered up instead of his son, Isaac. We've heard that story for a long time and and it's quite frankly unsettling. And it makes us feel better that the kids have gone off for their own message right now because it's a hard one to explain to the kids. After all, the, the question that's probably rattling in your mind is, what kind of father would willingly sacrifice his only beloved son. What is this? This was to have been a test for Abraham, the Bible tells us. But was it the, the positioning and the, and the willingness to use that knife? Was that the proof that Abraham had passed the test? Would God actually put any of us to a test like that to determine how faithful we are? That's why this story is so unsettling. This story goes on for 19 verses. I've encapsulated the first 18 for you to this point. Here's the last verse. And rather than encapsulating it, I'll read it verbatim. It says this. Abraham returned to his young men, the men back down off the mountain. And they arose and went together to Be'er Sheba, and Abraham lived at Be'er Sheba. That then is the 19th and final verse of this story from Genesis. I've always been stricken in that 19th verse by what, or rather who, is missing in that passage. Did you notice? Where's Isaac? He's not mentioned. Did he come down off the mountain with his father? How come his father just met up with the other two young guys and left? What's that all about? Where is the son? Did he run away in another direction off the backside of the mountain and Genesis just forgot to tell us? Did the father actually sacrifice his son on that altar? Is that what happened? Did he leave him up there on that mountaintop altar as a sacrifice according to the Lord's bidding? Yeah, I know. I know. I've studied Genesis. I know that Isaac will appear later in Genesis and he will have twin sons of his own, um, Jacob and Esau. And the story continues. But I ask myself, and I ask you, might Isaac have died as a result of his father's will and then, maybe, was resurrected later, perhaps, in my imagination, three days later. This is all part of my own speculation. It's mine. I admit it. But the way the Bible text is presented has always made me wonder, where's Isaac? He seems to be in the white space of my Bible and not in the letters printed in black. 
And then I ask myself, could it be that the more significant test that's presented by this ancient story was not about Abraham's faithfulness, but it was about the faithfulness of the reader, you and I. When we shake our heads and say with certainty that a human father and son, any parent and child for that matter, could never endure a test like Genesis 19 describes, we are without doubt absolutely correct. So I believe this story is not about those of us who have developed a human understanding of what it means to love a son, or for that matter, to love a daughter. Instead, this story about Abraham and Isaac gives us some insight as to what it means to be God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. We cannot identify with Abraham. Abraham, And we certainly cannot imagine ourselves doing what that father did on Mount Moriah so long ago. But isn't that precisely what God did as he satisfied what theologians call the divine necessity, that which God must do when Jesus went to the cross because it was the will of his father to save humanity in that way? We can't imagine a fatherly God who would do such a thing. Human beings can't imagine such a thing. And that's precisely why God was able to vanquish sin and death and the devil by Jesus' willing act on the cross and into the grave and beyond. Because God is not human, doesn't think like humans, and doesn't act like humans. God is other. But what I tell you this morning has pointed more to the father than to the son. So I return to Abraham and Isaac and I ask you yet another question that's haunted me. Why didn't Isaac run away when his father Abraham came at at him with the fire and the knife and the ropes? Why didn't he just run away in the first place? You know, in, in my image for much of my life, I remember my mother's felt board. And Isaac was a kid on that felt board. But that's not what the Bible tells us. Isaac was roughly 33 years old when that vignette happened in chapter 19. That would have made his father 133 years old. I have this notion that Isaac could have probably outrun him. You know what I mean? And then I remember Jesus too was in his early 30s, roughly 33, same age as Isaac, when he went to the cross. He didn't run away either. He went willingly. In fact, he didn't take a step to the right or to the left when even his closest friends were trying to stop him from going, even going to Jerusalem. And so I've come to believe, and I pray you do too, that there is something different about this son. He's different than any other son that we've encountered or any other notion of son that we've had in our ordinary lives. And I can say this with confidence, I don't have to make it up because Jesus told us that this was the case. In today's gospel lesson that I read for you, Jesus tells us that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. This was in response to Philip's complaint that the disciples had never seen the Father. What Jesus is saying is, Philip, disciples, then and now, 
Stop your doubting about seeing the Father. The Father God stands right in front of you. What Jesus is saying to him is, I am the Son of God. And in truth, what he's saying, even more briefly and succinctly and directly is, Jesus declares, I am God. And there we have it. We've often assumed that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is something similar to our own experience with those earthly sons we've come to know. The words are the same, but the relationship is entirely different. This Jesus Christ, this Son of the Heavenly Father, is the same as the Father himself. They are God. At this point, last week in this inclusive, we've considered two articles of the Creed. And this, these articles help us to understand the triune God. And, and next week, of course, as three follows two, we'll consider the third article. But we must understand that we are encountering only one God. And this Son, this Jesus Christ, is God incarnate. God made over into human form by God's own power. And he came to earth for a reason. He came to earth to deliver a benefit for us. The benefit we receive through God the Son is hope. He has come among us to show the way, as he said to Thomas. The way includes loving God and actively loving our neighbor. Jesus showed us how to love our neighbor, how to do it. He calls us to follow him to do the same. He's also shown us the way to the place he has prepared for us. That little word we use for that place is called heaven. Have faith, he commanded us. Have faith. Our faithfulness may not, and it should not, look like Abraham's. But God's faithfulness is far stronger than that shown by the man who would later be called the father of faith, the man on top of Moriah. God has made himself to be for us the son of God who has given humanity absolutely everything possible. He did that, Jesus did, not for his own glory, but for your sake and for mine. From this son rises our hope. Hope that those things which torment us in this life will be put aside when we arrive at the place the son of God has prepared for us. Our faith in God the Son is rooted in the one who has been perfectly faithful to the cross, to the grave, and beyond. Remember also, sisters and brothers, Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Even though he knew that you and I would be shaken in the world in which we live, we're shaken because of those unexpected changes that come about and, and now are beyond our control often. As I mentioned earlier, this past week has been a shaky one, full of changes to say the least. And we don't know exactly how all those changes are going to, forgive me, shake out. That will depend on you and I and our brothers and sisters and neighbors and how we work these things out with God's guidance in the days, weeks, months, years to come. 
But brothers and sisters, I'm here to encourage you this day to let those concerns go. We will deal with those things, but let those concerns go from your heart. Instead, believe in the Son and have hope in the world to come that he has promised us. That world to come has the Son's peace and blessings ruling there forever. And these things that bother us in the here and now will be vanquished just as sure as sin, death, and the devil have already been. Thanks be to God. Amen.